Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guests are Charles Duell, who is president of the Middleton Place Foundation, and Anne Goud Tinker, who is a trustee of the foundation and also on the curatorial team that has helped to put together a wonderful exhibit of paintings and watercolors by Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith. And it will be exhibited at Middleton Place and the Edmonston Alston House in the fall. Anne and Charles, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you. Anne, let's talk a little bit about your background. Obviously, you've got Charleston Connections. You're, you're a trustee. Well, actually, I, have, I live in Massachusetts, and I'm retired now, but I have a lot of connections with Charleston. My grandfather was uh, Bill Goud, who started the Goud School, which is now the Porter Goud School. Okay. And um, I'm descended from the Middletons, which is why I'm so very connected to Middleton Place Foundation. And by profession, you are in public health, is that right? Yes, I've spent most of my life in Africa, Asia, Latin America, working with, most recently, Save the Children with the International Program for Maternal and Newborn Health. And I worked very closely with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Okay. I've been to about 67 countries in my career. So. Wow. Are you an epidemiologist or? A public health specialist and international relations. I had graduate uh, work in both of those areas. Okay. And wow. 67 countries. Yes. Uh, probably a lot of them are not on people's bucket list. No. No. <laughs> Bangladesh, uh, <laughs> Kenya, Mali. Um, I spent a lot of time in India and Pakistan. The main effort was to train midwives to help mothers with better care of their children and also really to improve family health. And in these countries, it's pretty basic health systems that need attention and support. But you also have an interest in art as well. I do. Well, just I feel, um, I feel very fortunate to have had a great aunt, Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith, who was so very talented. And uh, unfortunately, it skipped my generation. <laughs> but my daughter, Caroline, is uh, a very good artist as well. And I uh, these exhibits we're planning for the fall are to honor Alice and to help really share some of the paintings and memorabilia that the public has never seen together before. Oh. So we have, and most people really associate Alice with her uh, rice plantation work or her swamps, but she has, she produced a huge range of material. She's done uh, mahogany panels with eagles. She's done children a children's book, which is absolutely delightful, uh, which has a poet poem in it about preserving wildlife around the Charleston area. And then she did quite a lot of early work in miniatures and portraits, and also in um, woodblocks. And then she did with her father and some architectural drawings of the uh, old historic houses in Charleston. And her work in that really helped lead to the preservation movement in Charleston and the preservation of the historic district in 1931. In fact, that book was one of the first major publications of what we now refer to as the Charleston Renaissance. Yes. All right. Charles Duell, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Walter. The exhibit is being sponsored by the Middleton Place Foundation, so why don't we talk a few minutes about that and explain what the foundation is and how it came about. In 1970, when I was 32 years old, I inherited the property known as Middleton Place that today is a National Historic Landmark. And uh, by, the, by 1974, I realized that uh, if I were to get hit by a truck, all the property, all the assets would be sold in order to pay estate taxes because there was no liquidity to cover estate taxes. And also, I felt very strongly, Walter, that the the most important thing about Middleton Place was its history, not the kind of thing where you put your hands in the soil and say, this is mine, mm -hmm. but really belonged to the American people. And so I established in 1974 the Middleton Place Foundation, which is a nonprofit 501c3 educational trust. And over the next 10 years, in increments, saw to it that all of the property, all of the National Historic Landmark of Middleton Place was given to this foundation created to preserve it for posterity. 
and Ann Tinker is one of our very valuable trustees. I work for her as president and CEO of the foundation. And in the last couple of years, we have added a chief operating officer so that I no longer have to worry about all the details but can focus on big, bigger picture problems. And uh, Tracy Todd is, is really operating the place as the chief operating officer. And, and he's been with Middleton Place for a long time. He has for a long time. Great, great guy. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the tack you took of what you realized in, in 1974 is the preservation of a huge historic property is very difficult in this day and time. We don't have anything the equivalent of the, of the British National Trust. I know we have a National Trust for Historic Preservation, but it's not the same thing. And you've not only, with the foundation, preserved Middleton Place. As a historian, I've watched it over the years, the evolution uh, and expanding of the role, particularly interpretation, and for those of us who've been involved with historic properties, it's really been amazing to see the response. The more you focused on family, the greater the interest there has been. It's the family, uh, and we're talking about everyone who lived on Middleton Place, that seems to be an attraction. Mm-hmm. Right. What the, what the foundation focuses on today is not just the Middleton Place family, but everything we, we do in terms of interpretive initiatives are based on research and documentation with more and more work being done today in the African-American side of it so that we're telling the story of not just the people that lived in the big house but all the human beings that lived on Middleton Place over the last couple hundred years. And in fact, unless I'm mistaken as well as I remember, Middleton Place really pioneered this effort to tell the story back of the big house as it would have been referred to. We did. And, again, Tracy was very much involved in that. But Middleton Place is a big operation. You want to talk about that for a few minutes? I mean, you've got environmental tours. You've got, you've got the working artisans in the, in the yard. All of this just didn't happen. Well, it, it's been an evolution of, of following how best to really present what Middleton Place was all about and continues to be all about. And so it's, it is, the garden is essentially important. But in addition to that, the House Museum has been, been filled with uh, objects that belong to the Middleton family that have been returned by Middleton descendants who are very generous in making gifts and loans of objects that help let people really uh, get an understanding of, of what the Middletons were like. We know historically that Arthur Middleton was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and his father president of the Continental Congress before him and and his grandfather, a governor of South Carolina, who was instrumental in ending the proprietary rule system that ended in, 19, in 1719. Right. But uh, it also lets us see their what their tastes were, what their interests were, get a feeling of their personality by having these objects in the house to interpret the members of the Middleton family. And then in the stable yards that you referred to where we have blacksmith, carpenter, cooper, spinning and weaving, pottery, so on, it demonstrates the activities that enslaved Africans uh, were engaged in on a self-sustaining plantation. The development, and I say the evolution of the interpretation, uh, it's what those of us who work for years in this tarp preservation have wanted to see, not just the house beautiful, or as they used to slang and they say, the all hail to Chippendale crowd, and that's all they all they wanted to do. I know on my last visit down to Middleton Place, we talked about the maps and the siting of the house and the geometric axis on which it is built that you that you can see. And I found that fascinating. You want to talk a minute about that? Well, it's all under the influence of the patron saint of Middleton Place, who was André Le Nôtre. André Le Nôtre died in the year 1700, and Middleton Place wasn't laid out until 1741. But the influence of Le Nôtre survived and continued well into the 18th century, middle of, past the middle of the 18th century. So when the garden was laid out under his following his, the principles of Lernot, it is extremely uh, true to uh, perfection in the influence of the age of reason, 
of Descartes and Voltaire and André Lenotre so that one sees uh, gardens laid out in geometric forms, one sees surprises when one goes from one space to another and uh, changes in elevation and everything very crisp and, and uh, balanced and symmetrical. It creates an, an atmosphere that is uh, punctuated by flowering plants, the most uh, popular of which today are probably camellias and azaleas, but different plant material that really accents the geometric layout of the, the various parts of the garden and, and how the whole come together. You've mentioned the house, uh, the house museum, which has been restored, and it is beautiful, but sometimes people don't remember that that's just a wing. That right. was just one wing of the original house. Right. Uh, the first one, I mean, the, the, the main house was destroyed in 1865. The, the uh, family, first family residence, the, the, the central part of a complex of, of buildings that became the Middleton Place House, uh, the, the, the first central part of it was, was built in 1705, which is very early for the, the Charleston. Mm -hmm. And then the two flanking buildings were added 50 years later at the completion of the of the building of the garden and incorporated into the plan of the garden so that the two flankers dating from 1755 are to the to the south a gentleman's guest wing that's that's now the Middleton Place House Museum and to the north a musical conservatory and library that was quite significant housing about 10,000 books and those books went up in flames in 1865. Mm -hmm. and, and the whole, the whole complex, the the three main buildings and outbuildings, were burned uh, just two months before Appomattox, and then uh, left freestanding walls for the most part. The south flanker, that was the gentleman's guest wing, that's the Middleton Place House Museum today, was simply the least badly burned, and so when the Middleton family returned in the 1870s. They re repaired and, and uh, strengthened the house with a new roof and with actually some additions to it and used that as their family residence from then on. And, and so th that South Flanker, now the House Museum, survived the terrible earthquake that just felled the freestanding walls of the main house and the North Flanker. But, but you have preserved in situ the remains of the main house. Yes, and we try to, to keep them as part of the story, you know, to, to, to interpret them. The, the, the ruins are not allowed to be overgrown and, and just uh, let go, but they're preserved and part of the interpretation of the historic experience. Well, in terms of the access, it's important to stand right there at the central stairway yeah. and mm -hmm. realize the layout of the... Of See the, the Ashley River. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. As a young boy, you visited your grandparents in Middleton Place. I did. And it's really to your grandparents who began the movement to save Middleton Place. They were really pioneers in, in uh, garden restoration. They moved out from Charleston in 1925 with their, their uh, daughter. And uh, for the next 15 years, which was in the height of the Depression, the late 20s and into the, all through the 30s, uh, restored the garden kind of path by path and kind of rediscovering what was there and 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 then finally uh, being recognized by the Garden Club of America for their work in 1941. That fantastic award is in, in, is part of the museum display in the, it is, in the house. The, the Garden Club of America Award is called the Bulkley Medal. And uh, at the time it was awarded, the... Uh, Garden Club claimed that Middleton Place was not only the oldest landscape garden surviving in America, but it was also the most important and most interesting garden in America. So we, we hope that uh, those accolades continue today, and we try to maintain them so that they well, continue and to be considered. Well, you, you, you do maintain them, and as you pointed out, the basic floor are azaleas and camellias, right. um, most of which some people would say were introduced into South Carolina by Michaud at Middleton Place. The first camellias were in, in the, the late 18th century. And then the first azaleas didn't come in until 100 years after the gardens were laid out. 
They were introduced in the 1840s. And let's let's move on to the exhibit. As a trustee, how did y'all decide to fund this or mount this exhibit? Well, you know, Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith is actually descended from the Middletons, and she spent quite a lot of time at Middleton Place doing her art. Uh, in fact, I have a wonderful quote from her when she visited Middleton Place one time. She walked there with her father on one Sunday stroll. Okay, all right, no, wait, but let's just stop a minute. She walked from Charleston. Fifteen miles, both one way, so 30 miles both ways. Okay. And uh, this is what she said about it. Um, Middleton Place was beautiful, a jewel thrown down in the green woods. We strolled through its paths under the great oaks, looking out across the fields and the river. And several of her paintings are actually about the Middleton Oaks and the Butterfly Lakes and some of the ponds and the mill, mill pond house. And so that's part of the reason why her exhibits are associated with Middleton Place, but it's also um, because this fall there will be in November a reunion of the Middleton Place or the Middleton families, both European Americans and African Americans. And so we thought this was a very opportune time to celebrate one of the Middleton descendants um, at the same time as we celebrate uh, the history of Middleton Place. and. I think Charlie is very, um, my cousin Charles is very humble. He's done an extraordinary job at Middleton Place in taking it from uh, what was really a private residence, which was deteriorating given lack of many resources. And uh, it's, a, it's with the stable yards, the gardens, the house museum, all the educational opportunities that are provided there. It's really quite an extraordinary resource. And it's, I think one of the things as a trustee that is important to me is it's very authentic. Uh, it really is true to the history of Middleton Place. But the exhibit will be at both uh, Middleton Place House Museum and at the Evanston Alston House in downtown Charleston. And we'll have about at least 40 paintings from family members that have never been seen by the public before together. We will also have some of the personal letters, the original books. Um, I have a wonderful book that she wrote for her niece and nephew here, which describes how important it is to save the wildlife of the South Carolina Low Country. And uh, another quote from from Alice was, uh, I have loved this country, painted it the better because I have loved it and loved it the more because of those dear days when slowly jogging down the quiet roads, one had to be intimate with the grass on the ground and the trees overhead because each blade of grass and each branch of the tree was so definitely a companion and yourself not a hasty, careless passerby. And she went all over the uh, South Carolina coast. She loved Charleston. She went to New York and Chicago and various other places to exhibit her work and to sell her work. But she always wanted to come back to Charleston because she loved the low country so much. The landscape and the people. Uh, yes. She has that series on, on rice plantations. And I believe the quotation was she wanted people to remember a way of life that had gone. It was her imagination of what it might have been in the 1850s. Of course, she was she was born over a decade after the Civil War, so she never actually saw what a old plantation life was like, but she heard from, about it from her father, and she observed uh, plantation life uh, after the Civil War um, around the South Carolina area. But well, she really loved the the, um, the birds and the countryside. And when she did the rice plantation work, she studied intensely the technology of rice production. And so when you see her paintings that describe each stage of rice production, of the threshing, the planting, the threshing, the, the milling, the winnowing, she really has exactly the right technical uh, movements and steps that were taken to produce the rice. 
And Charles, you still grow rice at Middleton Place. We started about 10 years ago with a demonstration rice field that, in fact, is the only place in South Carolina where the public can come to see the cultivation of rice. Uh, We did it because, uh, obviously, rice was the the source of wealth that made these places uh, possible. And for people to understand it, it's historically important. So that we took a quarter acre out of a large 15-acre rice field and are cultivating it today, planting in the April, May, spring season, and harvesting in the fall. And you have a rice truck so that you can control the flow just as you would in the past? We do. We we flood it to control aquatic weeds, uh, which is uh, exactly what was done in the past. We do it with a more modern method, but we allow water in on it and then take the water off when we're when it's being harvested. Yeah. Well, that, you know, the colloquial term, when you planted the seed, then you had the sprout flow, which, yeah. mm-hmm. and then you drained, and then you had the stretch flow, right? which is when you, you kept you kept the weeds down, and then, and you are growing Carolina Gold, isn't that correct? That's correct, yeah. The heritage rice. Right. And you also have the utensils, the you know, the, the threshers, and you have the mill. Do you go through the whole process? You, I know the mill building is still there. Yeah. Well, we, we, we harvest it, and, uh, and we do uh, demonstrate uh, the milling and, and, and uh, removing of the of the brand from the rice, but we don't really do it productively. Most of the grain that's grown goes back to replanting the crop next year. Okay. It's an amazing story, and again, the fact that you're doing that on on the site is an example of the evolution of your interpretation of mm-hmm. the property. We need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Charles Duell and Anne Goud Tinker about Middleton Place and an upcoming exhibit of paintings by Alice Ravenel U.G. Smith. Now, most of these paintings have never been seen before, right? Yes. Okay. And they've been in our homes, and for example, I have brought down several of our paintings from our house in Massachusetts. And um, some of the most interesting ones, I think, are unusual for, for most people who have seen her, her birds and her rice uh, planting paintings because she's done work on mahogany. Mm-hmm. Uh, she um, visited her brother in Massachusetts and did a series of paintings about a sailing boat race with, oh. accompanied by a poem. And, um, and then this very special book that she did for her niece and, and nephews, which describes herons and egrets and the beauty of the Low Country. Is is one of those your parents? Yes, my mother was uh, her her niece. Okay. And actually, I have a granddaughter whose name is Alice. So this really is a family story that that she did that book for your mother and exactly and your uncle exactly yes okay and I do have if you like to hear just an excerpt from it, I could yes, read that. Uh, yes, I think that would be very nice. So she's describing the, the birds in the coastal uh, areas, and she says, there's the great blue heron, tall and slow, and the little blue heron, we call him Pojo, and the little green heron, or fly up the creek, he's a beautiful green with a big strong beak, and this is all accompanied by illustrations of these birds. The black-crowned night heron, he sits up all night, and his twin, the night heron, with a yellow crown bright. Their children are yellow with darker brown specks. I've drawn two with their beads nesting back on their necks. And then she gets into some of her sort of advice to be careful with nature and be sure to preserve wildlife. The white snowy heron and the green-white egret There used to be thousands so lovely and white, with their beautiful plumes like spun glass in the light, with their black bills and legs showing clear against the sky. They would rise in white clouds if you chanced to pass by. But seeking for trimmings for hat shops in town, men with guns from great cities have shot them all down. And now on this island, where there used to be many, In a very few years, there will not be any. 
So some men who live here in our own Charleston city, thinking this is a cruel and terrible pity, here bought Heron Island, and so there is yet a chance of their saving the hunted egret. Oh. And this is full of illustrations of birds and the countryside and uh, the importance of, the message of the importance of protecting wildlife. Now that looked like a new book, so has that been reprinted? Well, it's actually uh, been in our family's uh, ownership, and we've decided to publish it. So we will be able to, to have it available at the exhibit. That's, again, an interesting part of her, her work that people would not have known mm -hmm. because it was done just for the family. Is that right? Yes. Originally. Yeah. Yes. And she's uh, she also, something else that people don't know about her, during World War II, there was a real shortage of housing in Charleston because of the Navy Yard and the Army uh, soldiers during World War II. And so she and her sister opened their house to servicemen, and they put cots in the drawing room. And uh, she became very fond of one of those soldiers named Harry McInvale and his family. And they lived with Alice for some of their uh, married life. She helped uh, the wife of, of this serviceman learn how to paint. And uh, she even made it possible financially for them to send their children to college. So one of the sons, um, Dwight, is writing a book about Alice, and he's been spending several years putting this book together, and it's expected to come out not in time for the exhibit, but the following year. Is there going to be a catalog with this exhibit? Uh, we will have a brochure, which will describe the, the exhibit in general, and then we'll also have in each site where the, where the paintings and other memorabilia and objects are, we'll have a description of each of those, and there'll be some special tours through each of the museums to, to see those. Okay. And some of her miniatures, which again is something that many people don't know about. She, she studied for a year in New York, staying with her brother, and uh, took classes with a woman who was a famous miniaturist. And she came back and did miniature portraits of various people and sold those, uh, which was helpful to make uh, some income. Um, but she also helped the Gibbs Art Gallery to become the third largest collection of miniatures in the country. Mm -hmm. She's She was related to uh, Charles Fraser, who is a famous uh, miniature from, from this area, and so she uh, wrote a book about him and also chaired the committees that spearheaded three exhibits of miniatures during the 1930s. And so did she do her miniatures in the traditional way on ivory? Uh, some of them. Some of them. Yes. I mean, uh, watercolor on ivory, you just imagine the technique, the, the delicate way it had to be done. Mm -hmm. You just told me something I, I, I knew about her love of nature and now, I did not know she had done many tours. Yes. Her yes. father actually recommended to her that she uh, do portraits because uh, there, it, there were in Charleston a number of people who wanted portraits of their ancestors copied as their families grew and so on. And for a couple of years, she, she followed his advice, but she really told him that she wanted to paint landscapes and nature and birds and that kind of thing more, and, and pretty much... Uh, gave up uh, that effort in her earlier part of her career and stuck with the watercolors of landscapes and nature for the rest of her life. And you mentioned she also did woodblocks. Yeah, she was very influenced by the Japanese uh, in the early 1900s. And so some of her paintings, as well as her woodblocks, really look quite Japanese. She had several Hiroshigis that her cousin had given her. Mm -hmm. And um, that was very much an influence. The Asian influence at that time was very popular. Well, see, again, that you know, people think of Anna Hayward Taylor and others who, with the Charleston Renaissance, who did that. Uh, are any of those going to be on exhibit? Uh, I think we will have a couple of those wood blocks. Uh, you've opened up a whole new dimension of Alice Ravenel and U.G. Smith. She did, she's just not doing architectural drawings mm -hmm. or the landscape. She was very much a part of that uh, wonderful period between wars in Charleston that we call the Charleston Renaissance, mm -hmm. where people were experimenting with mm -hmm. different art forms. 
And I think as you, uh, I was just going to say, what a, I think one of the wonderful things to me, too, since I've spent a lot of my time working uh, with women in developing countries and all over the world, is that, you know, she, in her time in the early 1900s, was really quite a an accomplished and independent woman who was gracious and gentle and kind, but she also uh, was able to make some money out of her art and to become really quite an extraordinarily uh, talented and skillful person who was known around the country for for the work she did and the kind of preservation uh, commitment that she had to the Low Country. One of the things that uh, impresses me when one studies the history of Alice Smith is that as part of the Charleston Renaissance, she was not competing with other people, but they were very collaborative and they worked together. Their studios were near each other, but when you mention Anna Hayward Taylor and Elizabeth O'Neill Verner and, and other artists, they, they helped each other. And I think in the woodblock print period particularly that she and Anna Hayward Taylor worked together I know that she was a, a mentor of, of Elizabeth O'Neill Verner and actually taught her a lot of her technique. So, uh, so people perhaps aren't aware that, that they did really work together and help each other and not just compete with each other. The whole study of the Charleston Renaissance, I mean, that, that actually has, I mean, those of us who've loved South Carolina history knew all about it, but it has been rediscovered uh, by folks who do literature, folklore and art. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's it, it has undergone a renaissance in academic mm-hmm. circles, whereas before it was just kind of dismissed as, oh, well, that's local color, yeah. it's not important, so forth and so on. Exactly. And despite the fact people would think that DuBose Hayward was the best-known person out of the Charleston Renaissance, I think the women who were mm-hmm. involved in the Charleston Renaissance, Josephine Pinkney, Pinkney mm-hmm. uh, Anna Wells Rutledge, Helen McCormick, Laura Bragg, the women were way ahead of their time, the art community. Uh, and of course, the Poetry Society uh, of South Carolina, if you, if you belong to that, that was, that was the beginning, because they had the annual yearbook. That, that was uh, you know, Herbert Ravenel Sass, then they did a book on the Low Country, and, she, and Alice did the illustration. So mm-hmm. as you say, they, they weren't competing with one no. another. And in many ways, that, that Renaissance, particularly her paintings, have created I would say, an indelible image in most people's minds of what the Carolina Low Country really and truly is. Those, those women who you're mentioning also played major roles in the preservation efforts. I mean, at, at the Gibbs Museum, Susan Frost, of course, starting the, the Preservation mm-hmm. Society, uh, Josephine Pinckney and, and Alice Smith uh, were, were parts of uh, the founders of Historic Charleston Foundation. Mm-hmm and uh, setting up the whole ordinance in the city that uh, provided the the first Board of Architecture Review in the country and and focused on historic preservation that's probably Charleston's greatest uh, lasting strength today. That's when the Charleston Museum and the Gibbs really I think came into national mm-hmm. prominence. Yeah. Don't want to forget the South Carolina Historical Society, which grew actually stronger during the Depression. And I know from its records, it was because they finally decided to let women on the board, <laughs> and it was women who were writing the checks that yes, helped keep. Yes, I remember reading that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a story that's, you know, a southern town, a small southern town, with a fairly rigid social structure, and you've got these women who come from, primarily they are upper-middle-class women, but they're working with folks across the spectrum, and they're producing incredible works of art. Actually, it's exciting that the Gibbs Museum have studios in the basement of the building for education purposes. One of one of them is named after Alice, and the other is oh. after some of the other women who were, during that period, the uh, famous artists and so that will be another commemoration of, of that history. Alice was quite involved with the Carolina Art Association, and in mm-hmm. fact, Gibbs has most of uh, is where most paintings and personal artifacts are that belong to Alice or was were related to Alice. They are at the Gibbs Museum. Oh, okay. 
And of course, you said she was descended from Charles Fraser, and of course he was, back in the 19th century, the whole idea of the Carolina Art Association was, mm-hmm. so it really is interconnected. Everybody's a cousin in this movement. Yes, it's true. But I have a very sort of informal picture of Alice because I was, well, I was 13 when she died, and we used to come down from New England to Charleston every year to see the family. And I remember sitting on the joggling board on the piazza of 69 Church Street, and we'd be, you know, bouncing up and down on the joggling board. And she always had one piece of advice, and she would say this often, and it was... Um, open your mind and let the fresh air come in. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she was, I think she was very much of an um, open-minded person. But I also saw her often with her easel in the backyard, and she produced an enormous amount of uh, sketches and sketchbooks and artwork. And I think we're just, as a family, as my family is really just discovering much of this as we prepare for this exhibit. What, what a range of interests and, and activities she was involved in. Well, you are on the board. Is the board of Middleton Place Foundation, is that, are they all family members? Or? No, and uh, it's been evolving also as the foundation has evolved. But it's now a board of, of, of 16 or 17 members that include... Um, five uh, immediate family members. My, my children, three of my four children are on the board. And then there are other uh, members of the, of the extended family, if you will, cousins like Ann Tinker and Pierre Manigo and uh, Earl and, and Elizabeth McMillan. But uh, it's, it's, it's also got totally unrelated uh, trustees also. It's really there to attract the attention of people who love Middleton Place and care about it and want to be part of its uh, ongoing support and governance. And that leads me to the story of the candlesticks. Oh, yes. That's a good one. Which is, I think, an incredible story of generosity, but also of, of family connections. And the fact that, well, Charles, you and Anne tell the story. I think the, the candlesticks... At Middleton Place, uh, something would interest our listeners. What Walter's talking about is on the dining room table now in the House Museum are eight candlesticks. When the House Museum was opened in 1975, there were no candlesticks. And, and, and then uh, about a year after the foundation opened, there came from the Green Spring Valley in Maryland this very handsome pair of candlesticks that are uh, kind of in the form of a Corinthian column and, and quite elaborate and beautiful. The hallmarks will tell you that that they were made in London in 1771 by John Carter. And uh, so that was the first pair. And then three years later, another pair came to Middleton Place, identical with the first. And so the uh, research department people started really trying to find out what, what the history of this was. And they found in the inventory of Arthur Middleton's estate that, in fact, there were listed four pair of candlesticks made by John Carter in London in 1771. And then a descendant in Charleston loaned a, a, a third pair. So for a long time, there were six candlesticks on the table. That third pair has subsequently been given to the foundation. And just within the last year, Walter, uh, a final pair of the same candlesticks came from a descendant who lives in Mamaronac, New York. And uh, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Those, the eight candlesticks today on the dining room table surround an apern that was also made in, in London in 1771. And that was the year that, that Arthur Middleton and his wife and sat with their newborn son who was to become a future governor of South Carolina and a future minister plenipotentiary to Russia, another Henry Middleton, uh, sat with him for this portrait of, of by Benjamin West that is dated 1771. So you can almost visualize them leaving West's studio and going down into to Old Bond Street and going to their silver agents and 
uh, acquiring this uh, apern for the dining room table and then a couple of candlesticks. We're kind of on a roll. So we do have quite a bit of, of fine silver from 1771. And when you think that any one of those pieces, any one of those candlesticks, could have been melted down, sold, lost, uh, broken up, taken by a family member elsewhere, and to have them all back at Middleton Place, I think it's really quite amazing. So any other similar stories? I know items keep coming back well, how in. How about the trunk, the trunk in the uh, second floor? Well, room. gosh, they're endless stories. But what Ann is talking about is that uh, there is at the foot of the bed in the south bedroom a leather trunk that's quite handsome with uh, uh, brass fittings on the sides of it and the corners to protect it. And it was discovered by my grandparents in the 1920s after they'd moved out to Middleton Place in the plantation stable yards. And it was simply had been abandoned there and it was all black. Nobody was interested in it. It was covered with, with straw and uh, just you know looked like some piece of junk. And Milby Burton, who was the then uh, director of the Charleston Museum, came out to visit them and suggested, why don't we open it and see what's inside? And so they figured out how to get through the lock and opened it up. They found it was lined with camphor wood, which is like cedar, uh, impervious to bugs and protective. And it had in it a group of clothing that were loaned to the Charleston Museum and have now come back to the Middleton Place Foundation after it was established. And the clothes are silk brocade waistcoats and breeches that were wrapped in, in uh, tissue paper and a note on them saying that they were court clothes of Henry and Arthur Middleton's. And what's kind of exciting is that we have them now all in a clothes press and uh, there must be gosh, uh, you know, counting waistcoats, breeches, maybe uh, 15 or 20 different pieces. And they're all in that, cl in that clothes press. On the bottom shelf is a gold brocade uh, waistcoat and breeches. And it has been gone over with the buttonholes counted and the stitches uh, observed and, and examined by experts from the Smithsonian who say that it is, it's, it's survives as the only ex surviving example that they know of in this country of the clothing worn in an 18th century portrait still together with the portrait. Because another Benjamin West painting that's, that's downstairs, not the, the family portrait, but another one is of Henry Middleton, who founded Middleton Place. And in that painting, he's wearing that gold brocade waistcoat and breeches. Wow. So uh, that's kind of an exciting story. <laughs> well, and it... And that just happened. I mean, things like that happen every year. I mean, I could I could bore you by telling more and more stories like that. Well, times. you're not boring me. It. One of the things we try to do when people talk about family and you know whether it's photographs or s silver candlesticks yeah. or clothing, is we here in the South have tended to keep those. But I hate to say it with the modern generation, and I don't want to sound like an old fogey, keeping a lot of that. Family material is not a priority, and that's particularly true of papers. People are still discovering treasure troves of South Carolinaana, mm -hmm. and right. I will get a call and I'll say, depending on where it is, I said that should go to the Historical Society or that should come mm -hmm. to the Carolinaana Library, depending on what part of the state they are. Oh, these are just a couple of hundred letters that Granddaddy wrote from college in the you know 1910, 1914. Yeah. Yeah a young Southern boy up at Walford College riding home to rural South Carolina, it's an important story. Mm -hmm. Yes, Walter, I will tell you one more story that, you know, we get these coincidences happen. It's just a lot of dumb luck, but we'll get a gift of a chair from from one person, actually. Uh, like from, Ann Tinker. From, from, from Ann's family. We'll get a gift of a chair from one place and a gift of a chair from an entirely different place without either owner knowing that they're part of a pair that's been separated. And they come back and put them together and fall out of their pair. And they're now up on the second floor of the house museum. But the this, this story, and there are two more added to them now, so there are four mm -hmm. of them actually now. But uh, the story about paper is that we were, the foundation, Middle Place Foundation was given about three years ago a uh, very handsome 
19th century coffee pot and teapot. And if you took them and turned them over, you would see on the bottom a very complete America's Maker's Mark. In England, they, we call them hallmarks. In this country, we call them Maker's Marks. And the Maker's Marks on the bottom of the teapot and the coffee pot say Ball Black and Company, New York, successors to Marquand and Company. And I promise you it was within less than a month, probably more like two weeks after those that teapot and coffee pot were given to the foundation, that another descendant walked in with a stack of papers about two inches high that were receipts and lists and letters and documents that, that he said were, came from his attic and his mother said that he thought the foundation might be interested in having them, and of course we were. And the research department went through them, and right in the middle they found one receipt that we now have photographed and display that's a receipt that's, that's from uh, an elaborate script on the top, Ball Black and Company, New York, successors to Marquand and Company. For one silver coffee pot, $110. For one silver teapot, $160. So that mar that kind of marriage of, of if you will, broadening the the story of, of objects that come back, yet is is very exciting and gets us, uh, gives yeah. us great pleasure. Well, I've often said that studying the history of this state is a joy of discovery, mm -hmm. but let's talk a few minutes more about the exhibition, and then we'll wind it up. Okay. And any, is there any particular? item in there that's just your absolute favorite, that when I come to look at it that I want to make sure I, I see? Well, actually one of my favorites uh, is uh, the one, the woods at the Wando River. And my, my grandfather had a cottage out near the Wando, and the, it was called River Bend, the, the little area there. And Alice used to go out. We often had our Thanksgiving dinners out there. We'd take picnics and we'd sit by the river and she did a beautiful painting of the woods looking from the porch towards the Wanda River and my father always had that in his study um, and I just remember that very fondly. Another one is of the portrait of her father which looks like an oil but it's a watercolor and it's quite a very grand portrait that um, just the eyes follow you wherever you are, and I remember as a child sort of thinking that was so interesting. Um, those are two, and of course the children's book has always been a very special thing for us. All right. The question is, is the Wando still as serene now, or, or is that as it was when she painted it, or is it? No. I, I remember going out there when I was a small child, and we'd, we'd get in a little boat, and we'd paddle around, and you didn't see any houses, and all you saw were alligators and, and the tide coming in and out, so it has changed a lot. Yeah. All right. Charles, anything special? Well, there's a lot that's special, and let me say overall, first of all, for clarity, let me explain that the exhibition is at two venues that are the two house museums of the Middleton Place Foundation. Okay. One venue is the house museum at Middleton Place. The other is the Edmondson Alston House related to the Middleton family, but the Edmondson Alston House at 21 East Battery in town. And basically, pictures of Middleton Place by Alice Smith will be concentrated at the Middleton Place House Museum, and other pictures, such as the one Anne was just referring, to, the ones Anne was just referring to, will be at the Edmondson Olson House. One of the nice things is that they are all part of an extended family because combining with the the Pringle family and the Smith family, Anne's mother's maiden name was Smith. My mother's maiden name was Smith. That could lead us to another longer story, but we won't go there. <laughs> but any, anyway, these two houses are combined, uh, are, are related uh, through Bishop Robert Smith, who was the first bishop of South Carolina and the first president of the College of Charleston. And one of the nice new objects that we have at the Edmondson Alston House is a wonderful chalice that's on a silver stem with silver rim and it's actually a coconut that's been, been embellished to make this chalice. And it's inscribed as a traveling chalice for Bishop Robert Smith. 
Mm-hmm. And it was a recent gift to the Middleton Place Plant Foundation by none other than than your interviewee and Tinker. <laughs> oh. So we're really pleased to have that there. And so, but it's getting to your question about the uh, my the favorite objects of mine. It would probably be the Middleton Place paintings of Alice Smith that will be at the Middleton Place House Museum. And part of it's a little subjective because one of the favorite ones is a picture of my mother in a tree near the house. Actually, two of them. One of them, my mother in a tree near the house museum, uh, standing with a peacock at the foot of the tree. And another picture is of my mother under the Middleton Oak, and it simply was described in Alice Smith's handwriting as uh, Josephine by the Middleton Oak. So just to remind uh, people about the dates, perhaps? Yes, and that would be good, the dates of the exhibit. Yes, the uh, Middleton Place exhibit will start on October 23rd with an opening, and then at Edmonston Alston House in downtown Charleston the week later, October 30th. And the good news is it'll be open until the end of Spoleto in June. So, oh, so it'll be it'll be almost nine months. Yes. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. And well, they'll be open with lectures by Martha Severins and Angela Mack. Okay. And Gad Tinker and Charles Duell, thanks so much for being with us today on the Journal. Thank you. Thank it's, you. It's been a real honor. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. In many ways, the success of Middleton Place today and this upcoming exhibit has a lot to do with family tradition, family heirlooms, and family caring about its collective heritage. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.